Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of the Double Coverage Podcast with myself, Sean Holko, and my colleague, Mac Irvin III. On today's episode, we have a very special guest as Jason Jones, the King's beat writer from The Athletic, will be joining us in the main event for our last segment of today. But before we talk to Jason, Mac and I will be discussing the NFL Combine that took place this past week, and we will also dive into the ongoing beef between James Harden and Giannis Antetokounmpo on this episode of Double Coverage. All right, Mac, let's get into the NFL Combine, which is the most highly publicized workout that hardly anyone pays attention to anymore. Yeah, it's not really it's not really a necessary thing anymore these days, is it? No, I, I don't think so. And it's it's it showed so much that you and I were talking before we before we went on air that there was like four to five teams out of the thirty two NFL teams that did not even send a representative to Indianapolis for the combine um this past week. So it, it just shows that um, its relevance is fading and fading and fading. And because when you, when you think about it, you know, it's so easy to get film nowadays from YouTube and from any other place, really. So it doesn't – it's not really necessary to send a big delegation out there just to watch one or two players specifically. Yeah, exactly. And also, um, we're going to get into this in a minute, but two of the top pro- – excuse me, three of the top prospects didn't even – like probably the top three picks in this NFL draft did not even work out at all. They went to the combine, they spoke to teams, and they did their formal interviews. And, and those three players that I'm uh, alluding to are Joe Burrow, Tua Tagovailoa, and also Chase Young from the Ohio State University. Mm-hmm. So had to get that in there, huh? I had to. I had to. That's why I put him last, too, so I – emphasis. But anyways, the three top prospects didn't even work out. So first, Mac, I'm going to ask this question to you. Is the combine even like worth our attention? It's a hard question to a- to answer because you know it does give an opportunity for some of the players you know who aren't getting that kind of media coverage. So for the people who are like drifting in between rounds three and five, it gives them an opportunity to come show out and impress teams who are there and the people who are watching all over the world. World it boosts kind of boosts them up the mock draft boards. We saw it last year with DK Metcalf. You know, he had that pretty great workout. That's your guy. Yeah, it is. I love my Seahawks, man. We've drafted the last two combine beasts, so uh, I don't know who it is he's going to be this year. (laughs) So you mentioned that the Seahawks like drafting combine beasts, and there has been one guy who has really uh, made an impression on on some scouts. Um, There's one guy who's a wide receiver who I'm thinking about right now, but then there's also, uh, I think he's a linebacker. Uh, I think Simmons from Clemson, I believe. Uh, first name Isaiah, he ran a blazing fast uh, 40 time. So the thing about this combine is, is that you're either going to leave a great impression or you're just going to tank your draft stock like we saw like a guy like Jake Fromm. So do you put a lot of stock into these workouts? Because I, I don't really, because if a guy can perform on the field, that's all that matters to me. I mean, it's all nice and great to have a sexy 40 time like John Ross. You know, when he ran the fastest 40 time, we saw a lot of hype around that. But ultimately, it doesn't really compare to like when you're actually on the field, when you have people chasing after you, when you're in pads and all that. It's it's a nice indicator of what they're kind of capable of. And in that respect, I think it's good. But it's not really a true test of how they're going to perform on the football field. We've seen a lot of people succeed, have great combines and have not have great careers and vice versa so yeah exactly and and the the player that I was mentioning that ran the quickest 40 time this year was Henry Ruggs the third the wide receiver from Alabama who ran a 4.2740 getting very close to that time that John Ross set a couple years ago I believe it was a 422 that he ran um, so 
Henry Ruggs just raised his draft stock. And the other guy, I, I did get his name right. It was Isaiah Simmons, a linebacker from Clemson, who ran a 4-3-9. And he's running faster than running backs like Jonathan Taylor, a bunch of wide receivers. So he just rose his draft stock. But those are guys who, who rose their draft stock. And, and we even saw the punter from, I think, Utah, who did 25 reps uh, on bench, and it was way more than a bunch of defensive linemen have done. Um, so he, obviously he raised his draft stock. But in your opinion, Mac, who whose draft stock dropped after this combine? Ah, uh, man, it's hard. It's, it's hard to say because there are a lot of you know people at the combine. I thought Jake Fromm's definitely took a hit. You, you never like to see a five second forty time. I know he's a quarterback, but it's still he's, he's white too. <laughs> that that is a factor. Okay, but if you if you I'll, want, I'll say it. If you, you won't say it, I will. If you, I, we could go to the Levar Ball route and say the white guys have slow foot speed, but I mean he, he's not wrong. A com- As a white guy, I can attest to that. <laughs> it's a conversation for another day. I mean, you never like to see like five forty times. It's always kind of slow. You're approaching the Rich Eisen territory. So, so so Mac, we talked about Joe Burrow to a tug of Iloa and also Chase Young from Ohio State. Those are going to probably be the top three guys. So now so now let's get into possible landing spots for those guys. So obviously the Cincinnati Bengals, they have the first overall pick. You would think they need a quarterback to replace Andy Dalton. Joe Burrow could be that guy. He is a native of the great state of Ohio, and he could just stay in Ohio. But they might be drifting away from him. And then you look at the Redskins. The Redskins are at two. They already have a quarterback, Dwayne Haskins from the Ohio State University that they drafted last year at 15. But as we saw that same year, it's very easy for teams to give up on top quarterbacks that they drafted. We saw it with Arizona. We can see it again with Washington. It's ridiculous, though, to me, because it was a half a season of a sample size, and it was when they had an interim head coach and there was just so much going on, then he lost his job again at the end of the season. Like just give the guy a chance with Ron Rivera, but they may, I don't know if it's for leverage, but they're, they're possibly looking at Tua Tagovailoa or Joe Burrow at number two, if one of those guys are available. But for me, it seems like a no brainer that they should take the best player in this draft in chase young. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think chase Young's the perfect pick for Washington. They could choose to get wild and take a quarterback. Personally, I wouldn't think so. They still have, you know, we're, we're still not sure about Alex Smith returning from injury. I think Haskins is good if you give him enough time to, like, marinate and season yes. into, a, into a starting quarterback. Yes. I'm not a fan of giving up on quarterbacks after one year. It's just it's too small of a sample size, and you have to give him some kind of consistency if you want to maintain if you want to grow and you also made the comparison to i believe you made the comparison to josh rosen last year josh rosen obviously got traded from the cardinals and was replaced by kyler murray but the big difference there is is a whole new system came in and i get ron ron rivera is coming in that's a whole new system but cliff kingsbury is an offensive minded head coach ron rivera is a defensive minded head coach so there's not a huge turnover on the offensive side and also kyler murray just fit his system perfectly does Tua Tagovailoa, who's very injury riddled, does he fit the system? I don't know, but this could just be the Redskins trying to maximize their leverage. It also could be, you know, they may be trying to look to move back, and so they're kind of saying, "Well, we might take this guy, or we might take this guy." They they might be trying to kind of like play in and see what they can get for that number two spot. They don't need a quarterback, so it's easy for them to move backwards and maybe take a guy lower down that they like. Maybe they like him more than Chase Young. Maybe they think he's a better fit. But, yeah, we'll just have to wait and see come draft day. This is a fun game that GMs all over the league like to play. And, you know, we saw this last year when 
Dwayne Haskins fell into the Redskins' lap at 15 because nobody thought the Giants were going to take Daniel Jones at 6. Still think it's the wrong decision to this day, but you know, we'll yeah, see how it plays out. We will wait and see. We will see if Dwayne Haskins is even on the Redskins' QB death chart come the season. But the great thing is, Mac, just like the NBA, the NFL offseason um, is very entertaining. This is just the beginning. We will continue to talk about these same prospects for the next month and a half. And this is only the beginning. It all starts with the NFL Combine, then we're going to get into Pro Days, and then the draft comes up, and, and you and I will come up with our own mock drafts. All right, so Mac, now let's get into the newest rivalry in the National Basketball Association. We saw it emerge a little bit this past summer, but it really escalated at the All-Star Game. And I'm talking about the rivalry between Giannis Antetokounmpo and James Harden. Yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's like most rivalries. It seemed to start with almost an attempt at a lighthearted joke from Giannis, but maybe there was a little more under it than we thought uh, during the all-star draft between Giannis and LeBron. Giannis said he was between deciding between Kemba Walker and Trey Young when uh, James Harden was on the board, and he said, I want somebody who can pass the ball and who will actually pass the ball. And then after the all-star game, Giannis is just in his casual post-game press conference, and uh, a journalist asked him a question. They're like, what were you guys thinking down the stretch trying to beat Team LeBron? Because uh, obviously it was, it was highly competitive, and we already talked about the All-Star game a lot here on this podcast. But after the game, Giannis says, oh, we were attacking James Harden. We were just giving the ball to whoever James Harden was guarding. And he didn't have to say that. Yeah. It's an All-Star game. This is a fun game. But yet he decided to take a shot at James Harden, and it's just escalated since that. And you kind of understand why James Harden feels a little feels the way he does because somebody's taking pot shots at you at what's supposed to be, you know, a fun celebratory event, especially one as emotionally charged as this all-star game was. So I can easily see how he would be annoyed and why he made the comments he did. So let's circle back, Mac, real quick. So you and I, when we first thought about this beef, we thought it just had to start with the MVP last year. Obviously, James Harden was the reigning MVP, trying to go back to back. Giannis won it. And after Giannis won the MVP, James Harden goes on a local Houston radio station and he said, I think once the media creates a narrative about somebody from the beginning of the year, I think they just take that narrative and run with it the entire year. And James Harden put up 36.1 points per game last season. So first and foremost, do you think that James Harden should have won the MVP over Giannis last year? Uh, such a hard question, especially in the NBA. You know, if we're really talking about the MVP, it should honestly be LeBron James every year. But for whatever reason, we just decide he can't win it one, more than once every couple of years. So, but I mean, last year, I mean, we saw how important Giannis was to the Bucks and how far he was able to take them. So I'm not too upset about what happened in the MVP vote. I think Giannis was a good winner. Harden would have been a good winner, too, but ultimately I'm content with the decision they made. And, you know, Harden, you did already win MVP. I know exactly. you want to go back-to-back, -back and you want to be greedy, and everybody wants to go back-to-back -back just like Steph did. No one will go back-to-back -back and be unanimous like Steph did. But everybody wants to go back-to-back, -back. and so Giannis makes those comments during pre-All-Star and after the All-Star, and then that leads us to an interview with ESPN's Rachel Nichols that was conducted over All-Star Weekend. And Rachel asked James Harden directly about that comment that Giannis made during the All-Star Draft. And James says, dunking takes no skill at all. And he says of Kemba Walker, I average more assists than him, I think. I don't see what the joke is because <laughs> obviously Giannis was saying, oh, 
Harden doesn't pass, but he averages twice, uh, like almost twice as many assists as Kemba Walker. And then uh, James Harden goes on to say, I didn't even see it, meaning the all-star draft. And then he says, I don't pay attention to stuff like that. I just I just know none of them can mess with me. Which seems, and then kind, of, which seems kind of funny given the comments he makes later about Giannis. And, yeah, exactly. And those comments exactly say, when it's all said and done, they will appreciate it more, talking about his playing style. And then he said, but I wish I could just run and be seven feet and just dunk. Like, that takes no skill at all. He said, I had to actually learn how to play basketball and how to have skill, you know? I'll take that any day. Those are legitimate shots. Yeah. And they're basically slapping each other back and forth through the media. Yeah. Well, that one was more like a punch than a slap. This is true. This is true. He said he said Giannis, who is an MVP and might go back-to-back this year, has no skill. Yeah. I'm not sure how much I agree with that, to be honest. If – Honestly, if basketball was all about tall people, we would see we would just see nothing but tall people. It would be a bunch of Alex Lands running around. Yeah. Well, hey, don't talk trash about Sacramento Kings legend Alex Land. You know, I the only reason why I mention Alex Land is because when the Kings made that trade, and we're going to have Jason Jones on from the Athletic a little bit after this segment, but when the Kings made that trade and they got Alex Land, I said, "Oh, Jabari Parker, that's potential, but Alex Land is just a big body." And Alex Land has been producing for the Kings. So, yeah. the big men can do something. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure because mm, it's it's hard because <laughs> I can tell it's tough. <laughs> I mean, obviously you have to have skill to play as, as well as Giannis is doing, and he he said as much as that. You know, I had to learn myself, you know, how to play the way I do. So I'm not sure I agree with Harden's comments, but I do agree with the mentality. If somebody hits you, you hit them back harder. Oh, I agree. And this right here that Mac and I are talking about right now. This is what makes the NBA so great. Mm -hmm. This is what Major League Baseball is lacking and they don't have. Other than the Astros cheating, this is what Major League Baseball does not have. They have Fun, unnecessary drama. There you go, Mac. You you hit the nail on the head there because baseball has a lot of personalities. Even the NFL. The NFL has started to do it a little bit more over the years. But this is what the NBA shines with. They have petty drama, NBA Twitter, and this is just like... A sample size of it and I love it because then journalists like you and I can come on our podcast and we can talk about this great beef that we see between two superstars who are obviously both probably I would put them in the top 10 of NBA players in the world so you got two of the top 10 players in the world going at it and I'm eating it like popcorn yeah for some of the stuff uh, NBA players have said about the media and the, you know the kind of narratives we uh, create they sure give us a lot of uh, a lot of opportunity they to give stuff. us the material <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 great. I love the NBA so much. All right, Mac. We always gotta pick a side to it. So if you're gonna pick a side, whose side are you on? Are you on James Harden's side of this beef or Giannis Antetokounmpo? Uh, so hard, but you know, in in a situation like this, the the only unless you have like a rooting interest or. It is mainly a rooting interest. Either you root for one of these guys' teams or you root for a team that's in the same division or rivals with these teams, and then that would persuade you. But us sitting here in Sacramento, we don't really have any ties. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty neutral in this, to be honest. I, I, just, I just enjoy watching this kind of stuff happen and let us sit back and see what happens out of it. I enjoy... I enjoy just sitting back and watching it, but I'm going to pick a side. I'm on Giannis's side because for James Harden to just to completely discredit him, like Giannis got shut down in the playoffs last year by Kawhi Leonard. That happened. And what did he do? He developed a jump shot. He developed a three-point shot over this summer. So then he would come back this year and 
He's coming off an off of an NB, MVP season, and he improved somehow. Yeah. So Giannis obviously has skill. James Harden is just butthurt that he's attacking his defensive ability and that he's talking about how he doesn't pass because obviously James Harden likes to play ISO, and he has that Kobe narrative to him that he doesn't pass. But I'm on Giannis' side of this beef. I don't know about you. You're probably just more neutral. I'm more neutral, but I, I, I don't agree with the— running and dunking no skill part i don't agree with that from from james harden so i yeah. suppose if i had to take a side i'd probably lean towards Giannis's side well we will probably be talking about this more in the coming weeks because the thing about the nba is that it continuously goes on and on and on and i don't think it'll happen but imagine if we got an NBA Finals between the Houston Rockets and the Milwaukee Bucks. The Houston Rockets and their small ball type of play would really have to shock the world and shock both L.A. teams in the playoffs. But boy, oh boy, that series would get such high ratings. If we're talking about hypotheticals, it'd be awesome if Giannis won one. If the Bucks won that series and Giannis won Finals MVP, and he's like, hey, well, I guess running the Duncan. Beats uh beats everything else. <laughs> Running and dunking beats a team that misses twenty seven consecutive three pointers. Oh, uh, James Harden. That Too was, soon. That was at Holko twenty three on Twitter. At Holko twenty three. Find me, James Harden. Let's talk. Let's talk. I'm on Giannis' side. All right, Mac. That's the beef between James Harden and Giannis Antetokounmpo. Next, we're going to talk with Jason Jones, the Sacramento Kings beat writer from the Athletic, joining us next here on Double Coverage. All right, we are now joined by Jason Jones of The Athletic, the Sacramento Kings beat writer. He has covered the Kings for over a decade. He was formerly at the Sacramento Bee, and now he is with The Athletic. How are you doing today, Jason? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. You know, the Kings have gone 11-5 and five in the last 16, so spirits are up. Yeah, it's a nice little you know, change of pace. I know you said a month ago they'd be playing games that meant something in March. I wouldn't have believed it, but you know I think late January they made a couple of cha- a couple of changes happened. Lo and behold, look at them now. Yeah, Jason Jones, Mac Irvin the Third. I'm Sean's co-host on this podcast. Uh, big fan of your work. Uh, oh, thank you. This is a crazy season the Kings have been having. Uh, but how did you how did you first evaluate the Kings? two trades that they made initially, and how do you uh, value them now? Well, I thought the uh, first trade, which was the uh, Portland trade, was just more of a uh, a deal just to kind of to, to open up a roster spot. for. I, I knew if they were going to trade Edmund, they were going to have to have probably an open spot because they probably weren't going to get a player back, at a, a $13 million player back in return for him. And I figured, you know what, for them, hey, if, you know, you get two smaller deals that are broken up, Maybe you can package one of those guys down the road, but I just thought it was, you know, kind of more of a minor transaction type thing. You know, you get a couple of, you know, second round picks. You get get out of uh, Trevor Ariza's possible commitment for the next season, even though I doubt they would, you know, exercise the option. You still save yourself having to pay the, you know, the buyout. So I just thought, I thought, I saw more of the, you know, a, uh, not so much of an upgrade as it was, you know, a, a fiscal deal. And then with the uh, Deadman trade, I kind of saw that the same way. At least you got off of Deadman's money. And, you know, you got two expiring contracts back in return. So I, I wasn't expecting a whole lot from either one of those deals, especially considering Baysmore was, was admittedly having a bad season in Portland. I knew Jabari Parker was injured, and Alex Lynn was coming off an injury as well. So I kind of figured, hey, this is not about – it's really getting the team better more than 
contracts, but surprisingly enough, Baysmore kind of found his, his groove again, or kind of his niche spin in the league. I think it helped that he's he's with a coach he knows in Luke, and his, you know he's, he's been he's been great. He's been a great linchpin to that second unit. Alex Lynn's come back in the last week or so, and just given this, they haven't had all year. Just actually a big body on, on the court. I mean, even at his best, Rashawn Holmes is still a small center. So they, they actually have a little size now. So it's all kind of clicked all of a sudden. Between all that, you know, putting Buddy Hill on the bench, everything's kind of clicked lately. Yeah, Jason, and, and you, you alluded to it there that Luke Walton moved Buddy Heald to the bench in Chicago. We all know that was right after that horrible loss against the Detroit Pistons. So initially, and I, and I know that you and I believe Jason Anderson of the Sacramento Bee are probably two of the only reporters who travel with the team to all the road games. So for you as someone who was there, what did you think of Luke's decision to bench Buddy in Chicago? I thought it, I didn't know if it was the right decision, but I thought it was worth looking at. Just because you talk to a lot of scouts and you know evaluators from the league, but the big thing is a lot of them believe that that's Buddy's best role on the team, or they are so as one objective on a good team. Buddy is not a starter, just because his skill set is a safety. He's a shooter. He doesn't, you know. Yeah, he's shown now that he can maybe you know facilitate a little here and there, you know. But when you have a to have a starting two guard in the NBA who's not great on defense, it's tough unless that guy is giving you, you know, Devin Booker type numbers. I'm not saying that Devin can't play defense. I'm just giving an example of a guy that's fire or Brad Beal. You know, you got to be getting 25, 30 a night. And um, the people I've talked to just kind of feel like with Buddy's skill set, he's a great shooter. He's not the best ball handler, not the best defender. That That's the perfect role for him to bring him in the game and to say, go shoot. And then, you know, kind of see what happens from there. So I was curious to how, first of all, Buddy would take it just because I know Buddy pretty well at this point. I knew Buddy wasn't going to like it, and Buddy even said that night he felt like he was being blamed for how the team was playing. At that point, they had lost 15 of 18. You know, so he felt like he was, like, and that's being blamed. But I think he's played his best ball of the season since going to the bench. Yeah, and you say he's played some of his best ball. Uh, did you expect that, you know, dropping Buddy to the bench and making that change, did you expect it to energize the team the way that they've been playing recently? No, I wasn't really sure what was going to happen because, you know, sometimes a guy, that, that can happen and the guy's attitude can be so bad that it sucks the energy out the room. But I think what it really did was it made Buddy angry. It seemed to focus him a little bit more, you know, he started playing better. It also gave De'Aaron Fox a little more freedom because I think early in start games, he was worried about doing like, I got to get Buddy going. I got to get I got to get all these guys going. And the Kings are at their best when De'Aaron is the guy leading charge, getting to the paint, scoring, and setting guys up. And I think he wasn't able to do that as much in you know when he had you know Buddy in the starting lineup. And now you go to that second unit, you can put Corey with Buddy, and everything's run for Buddy now. Yeah, that, that's an excellent point, Jason, because what we saw initially at the beginning of the season is that Buddy was being scouted against as like the number one guy to scout against for opposing teams because he was probably the Kings' most efficient shooter, at least. So I've heard a lot of names being thrown around, Harry Giles, Kent Bazemore, even Alex Lynn. But in your opinion, who has been the main contributor for the Kings during this run of going 11-5 and five in the last 16? I think 
think it's De'Aaron. This, you know, I think he's the guy who has really been the, the key behind all of this. I mean, you look at his numbers on the year, he's quietly averaging about 20 and 7, which isn't, which isn't bad. And I, I just think you look at like a game, the game Sunday, where he comes down and gets that late bucket for you, late to put you up. You know, even though the game shouldn't have gotten that close, there's another issue with them about for whatever reason why they're afraid to have a lead late in a game. They get up by 10 with three minutes to go and say, hey, let's give it all back. I don't know why they do that. But, I don't either. You know, but, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, they might they might lead the league in doing that. <laughs> you know, but, you know, De'Aaron, I think, I think De'Aaron's taking stride as a leader, kind of a guy who can be a um, – kind of be the engine of the team. And one of the things I knew talking to De'Aaron before the season, he really wanted to work on being a better leader. That was kind of one of his, his focuses was that – he knew that he just couldn't play. He had to, you know, be basically be the grown up in the room at times, get on guys. And he's gotten a lot. I think he's grown in that area. And to me, it's no surprise that he's averaging twenty something, you no know, twenty something points or whatever over this stretch, and they're winning games because for them to be good, especially with the injuries they've had, he's got to be good. Jason, there was a lot of disdain from the fans, a lot of disdain and apathy towards the coaching staff in the front office with how they conducted themselves in the off season. But does Luke Walton get enough credit for the job he's been doing? No, I don't think so at all. I just, I, I think, I, my joke is always that some fans will never forgive him for being a Laker. <laughs> and I also think that there's also kind of a revisionist view of Dave Yeager's time. Yeah, they won 39 games last season, but they were pretty miserable from early February to the end of the season. You know, they had 30 wins going into the All-Star break. They won nine more games. And they only beat two teams with winning records over that over after the break. And one of those was they played OKC in the second night of a back-to-back. And OKC played triple overtime the night before. So they weren't a good team, you know, for about the last three months of the season. But people were stuck on 39 wins, the uh, ninth in the West. But no, I even wrote about you look, you look a little deeper at it. Yeah, they were ninth, but they were nine games out of eight. They were only two games ahead of a Laker team that sat LeBron almost half the season. So they were closer to the bottom bunch than they were to the top eight. So if you took, if you took all that in consideration, the way they looked at the part of the season to me wasn't all that shocking. But I think people were just really hung up on, you know, we were ninth, they were ninth, they were ninth. When it was like, yeah, you were ninth, but a couple of breaks here and there, you would have been twelfth. Exactly. So, you know, yeah, and I and I think you know, to, also to that, that that line of thinking, I think maybe the front office really overvalued what they had. You know, they they went to go look for supplemental parts as if they had stars already, and they didn't. You know, you find a guy like Trevor Ariza when you think you're close, and you just need a vet to give you 15, 18 minutes. Now, when you need Trevor Ariza over thirty something years old to play 25, 30 minutes. You, you add a guy like Dwayne Detman or Corey Joseph as a piece, not as a key, you know, key part of your rotation. You know, and I think they they operated as if they had a really good team. And that's not to knock the players they had, but, you know, the way this league works, you're not good because you did it once. <laughs> you know, we've seen guys come out and have a good year and never be that same guy again. They had and once ended up also last season. They, they, they surprised a lot of people, caught people off guard. No one was no one was surprised by them this season, and it showed. And I think maybe the, also along those lines too, the players maybe 
thought they were a lot, a, a lot different than we realized they were. I think at right now, after the break, their focus is way better than it was last year. And last year, there was kind of this feeling like, oh, yeah, we're going to get in. This year, they even if they don't get in this year, I think these last 22 games of the season are going to be good for them because they're learning the focus and the attention to detail you need to be a good team eventually. I don't think they had that last year. Jason Jones of The Athletic joining us here on Double Coverage. You made a great point there, Jason, that last year the Kings, they were the ninth seed, but they were so far back that the playoffs wasn't realistic. This year, they're bouncing between 9 to 12 because we know it's five teams pretty much fighting for one spot. So they're a lot closer this year, which you, me, and Mac can all agree. If someone told us that a month ago, we would have thought that they were on drugs or something. So, Jason, last question that we got for you. You've covered the NBA for over a decade. You have covered the Kings this long without seeing them make the playoffs. So, in your opinion, what's your prediction for the eighth seed in the West? Because it's five teams fighting for one spot. Who's going to make it? Uh, see, uh, I kind of go two or three different ways. If Damian Lillard is back healthy soon, I think he's supposed to be back sometime soon, but if he's healthy and he's Dame Lillard, I think they I think they get in. I, just, I, I, I tend to lean toward who, which team has the best player. And to me, that would be Dame, but Man, this New Orleans team, I mean, I, I, I'm i surprised by Zion. I didn't know Zion would be doing what he's doing. So I think it's going to come down to those two. And the, to me, the Kings are out of it, but they're going to have to they're gonna have to win some key games. They're going to have to beat New Orleans. You know, you know, go down there and win. They're going to have to beat them head-to-head. They're going to have to, you know, which is going to be big for Fox. But the last couple of times he's played Lonzo Ball, Lonzo's had his number the last couple of times. You know, even in that last and they played in Sacramento, Lonzo had his number. So it's going to be big on Fox. It's going to be big on those. You know, and they can really carry them, you know, and win some of these games. You know, maybe steal a game. You got to maybe win a game at Houston. You're going to have to, you know, beat a, beat a Laker team when they come to your building. You know, you're going to have to steal a couple of games here and there. I thought the Oklahoma City game was a perfect chance to. They didn't pull it. You know, they, they blew that lead, but. My two, my top two picks right now would be either New Orleans or Portland. I just think with the injuries Memphis has to Jaron Jackson and Brandon Clark, that's going to catch up to them. They can only keep so much energy, you know, more, you know, motivation and everything up to beat a team like the Lakers every so often. And so that's where I'm thinking right now. So it probably means that the Kings are going to get in. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And and you made you made awesome points there, Jason. Um, just about the the Trailblazers and Dame Dalla with that groin injury, as well as the Pelicans. And I'm sure that the NBA would much rather see uh, the Trailblazers play the Lakers in the first round or Zion versus LeBron um, in the first round. So we just yeah, want to yeah, Zion, yeah, yeah, Zion against the Lakers would be the perfect you know TV bonanza. I'm pretty sure that they won't say it. They'd be like, really got you know. It's been so long since the Kings played the Lakers in the playoffs. They couldn't even do the whole the rivalry. It's, like, it's been 18 years. Yeah, for, for, for <laughs> like Lakers. De'Aaron was, was, was four years old <laughs> last time that happened. But don't think Sacramento fans won't get up for that game. Yeah, for Sacramento fans, oh, yeah, that's still a relevant mean, rivalry. Yeah, it's just not relevant in L.A., but, you know, yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And also, as you, me, and Mac all know, the Kings, they might be able to win those games that they need to against good teams like New Orleans and and some of the other playoff teams that they'll be playing, but 
They have to also win the games that they have to win, which we haven't really seen the Kings do consistently in recent years. They can beat the bad team or beat the good teams, but then they lose to the bad teams. So we shall see. It's going to be an excellent month of basketball, regardless of who you're rooting for over the next month and a half. Jason Jones of The Athletic joining us here on Double Coverage. Thank you, Jason, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. No problem. Anytime, guys. All right. Have a good one, Jason. Thank you for tuning in to the sixth episode of Double Coverage. For my friend, Mac Irvin III, I am Sean Holko. We want to thank our first professional journalist guest, Mr. Jason Jones of The Athletic, for joining us here on the show. If you want to check out the podcast, find us anywhere that you stream your podcast, Apple or Spotify. Check us out next Monday.